I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah, and we're going to be in chapter 40 today, which is kind of in more or less the middle of Isaiah. The word hope, it's a really interesting word. Uh, most of the time, that word is used to describe a wish or a dream. I hope my team wins today. I hope the teacher doesn't give any homework over the break. I hope we get bonuses this year. I hope the kids will come home for the holidays. But there's another way that hope is used. And, and let me just describe it this way. A few weeks ago, Charlene and I had the privilege to be with our grandchildren up in South Elgin. Their parents were out at an early work-related holiday party. So we had them all afternoon and all evening, and, and it was great as it always is. I was driving our eldest granddaughter to her drum lessons, and she was telling me about the youth retreat that she had just been on and how great it was and what she had learned. And, you know, if you've ever been on one of those things, you come home and you're kind of up and you're bubbling, and and she was there. And and then she told me that at the retreat they mentioned that uh, they go to a large church. They mentioned that the student ministries program had ordered merch Student Ministries merch, that's kids speak for merchandise, uh, for, uh, that could be here available at Christmas. That if they ordered it, they, wanted, they had a kind of a window. And so I began to ask her, well, what are you interested in? And she told me, and of course the item she wanted was the most expensive on the list. And um, so, you know, I said, okay, well, we'll give that some thought. And I discussed it with Charlene, and we placed an order, and Sent my daughter the receipt so she could pick it up when it came in. This last week I got a text. Hey, Grandpa, just a reminder that tomorrow is the last day to purchase merch for student ministries. My response, trust your grandpa. Her response, L-O-L, okay. In that reply, I knew that she knew that something was coming her way. In that reply, she reflected a confident expectation. In that reply, she showed that she trusted that I would come through. And that is the way the Bible looks at hope. Hope in the Bible is not a wish. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation that what is promised will happen. Now, on the other extreme in our lives, we have another word. It's the same word hope, but we add to it hopeless or hopelessness. And if you've ever faced a sense of being hopeless, you understand the darkness, you understand the the struggle, you understand the wondering. And if you've ever tried to walk alongside someone who's feeling hopeless, you have discovered how that is a very 
difficult and confusing task because it's, it's hard to put hope in someone when they have no foundation for hope. It's hard to know what to say. It's hard to know when to say it. It's hard to sometimes sit with someone and just be. Hopelessness drains us, whereas hope in a confident expectation fills us. Hopelessness drains us emotionally. Hopelessness drains us physically. Hopelessness drains us mentally and spiritually. The hopeless either give up or frantically search for anything to hang on to. This time of year can be very, very hard for many people. We did a seminar many years ago. I was surprised how many people came. Uh, I worked together with a, a local counselor, and, and we, we put together, we worked together and, and did, did a seminar. We called it Holiday Blues. We borrowed that title from a book, but that's what they call this time of year for some people. This is the time, Holiday Blues. Uh, it gets dark, and if you struggle with seasonal affect disorder, then you just can't stand it being so dark all the time. Uh, it, it's, it's just a, a difficult time of year. It's difficult maybe because there's someone not here that's always been around, or maybe it's difficult because the kids aren't going to make it home. They've got to go they got to go with the in-laws this year. What? Who, who came up with that idea? They ought to come home with us. All of that. And we're going to talk about hope today in the midst of all of the struggles of the season. Because today... As we look at Isaiah 40, the invitation for all of us is, come home to hope. I want you to think of three questions as we go through this passage today. Question one, what is your source of hope today? Question two, how can hope for you be more than a wish? And question three, how does hope make you a better person. When we get to the 40th chapter of Isaiah, there is a change in tone in the prophecy. In fact, the change in tone from Isaiah 39 to Isaiah 40 is so uh, drastic that there are scholars out there that said there were probably two Isaiahs. Uh, there, and the, the, the technical term is Deutero-Isaiah. There's probably another Isaiah because it's just so much of a change. Interestingly enough, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 deal with a lot of judgment and also deal with some history and things. And then when we get to chapter 40, all the way up through chapter 66 of Isaiah, it's about, it begins here, we'll see it in a minute, with comfort and with hope and with God's provision and with looking forward to a time of celebration. It's very interesting, uh, not maybe perfectly book by book, but there's a sense in which the first 39 chapters of Isaiah have a, a sense of reflection of the first 39 books of the Bible, which we call the Old Testament. And the next 27 books of Isaiah kind of have that little bit of reflection of the hope we find in the New Testament through Christ. Now, for some background, real quick, we need to understand not all the, the Bible books were put together in specific, chron, specific chronological order. When you read Isaiah, it skips around. It's, it's, it's more put together thematically than in perfect chronological order. 
Chapter 39 of Isaiah tells us this interesting story. There was a good king. His name was Hezekiah. He was a king that followed God. He was a king that did the right things. And he had a group of diplomats come and visit his kingdom. They were from this small, uh, far eastern community called Babylon. And when they came, Hezekiah rolled out the red carpet for them. He showed them everything. I mean everything. He took him into the temple. He opened the doors. Look at all the gold we have. This is in worship to God. Look at all the wealth we have. Look at how God has blessed us. I mean, it would be like showing someone Fort Knox when it had gold. It would be like, it was like, look at all that we have. And Hezekiah or Isaiah goes to him and says, Who were those guys? Oh, they were some guys from Babylon. What'd you show them? Everything. Man, I showed them everything. And Isaiah says, here's what's going to happen, Hezekiah. A, 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 a day is coming when they're going to come back with their armies and they are going to overrun everything because of the sin of this people. And you've just kind of shown them, you've shown them where all the bodies are buried. You've shown them all the secrets. And then what's going to happen is this people is going to be taken away to Babylon. We already saw that, didn't we, through the minor prophets. And I often struggle. Hezekiah was a really good guy. But I really struggle with chapter 39 and verse 8. The word of the Lord you've spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought. There'll be peace and security in my lifetime. And that's where the story of Hezekiah ends in Isaiah. It's like, oh, Hez, seriously, man. Well, I, it's it's not going not gonna to affect me. Eh, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, my great-great-grandkids. Yeah, let them deal with it. And so you see the stark contrast. It begins in chapter 40 and verse 1, comfort. After talking about captivity and being carried away, now the prophet writes, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I'm going to, as it were, lay some foundation stones for you of comfort, and here's the first one. When God is our hope, there is great comfort. When God is our hope, when God is our source of hope, there's great comfort. God sends this message, this message to his people that says comfort. Why do they need comforting? Because they've already been told a time is coming where you're going to be taken to captivity. And a time is coming where you're going to pay for the sins of not following me. And he said, and yet know this that after a period of time, I'm going to bring you back. Your sins will be paid for. I'm going to forgive you. And this is only God can do this. And he says, you can't have hope. 
you can have a confident expectation because God will forgive. How will God forgive? Isaiah lets God's people know that after their captivity, comfort is coming. You remember I've told you time and again, the Old Testament prophets are like they're standing looking at these different mountain peaks. and They don't see all that's in between. They just see the peaks. And, and Isaiah looks and he sees a voice of one calling in the wilderness. And you know, we find that in the New Testament, John the Baptist would say, I am just a voice of one calling in the wilderness. One coming to say, the, the answer is on the way. The Messiah is coming. The, the salvation that you've looked for is coming. And the image we have here in verses 3, 4, and 5 is an image that nothing will get in the way of God's plan. Nothing can stop God from restoring and caring for His people. How do we know that? How do we know that what God promises will happen? Well, we learn something else about God in the next three verses. Verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. We need to realize, if you haven't come to that realization yet, we need to realize we're all temporary. Charlene and I were talking the other day. We were, over Thanksgiving, we were in West Virginia, drove by my boyhood home, drove on up the hill. I pointed to the park spot where I fell and broke my arm, drove on down the hill, I pointed to my little school that I went to when I was in first grade that's now some kind of a factory, you know, and I'm sharing, reminiscing and all, and she's kind of politely listening. And, you know, I went to see my, my sister, my niece, and I, I said, hey, we drove by the house on Blue Jay Drive. Oh, Scott, I drive by, your, your, my mom always tells me about that house, so she's heard about it ad infinitum. And, and, you know, and I was reminiscing about one of the, my best Christmases there, and I, I won't go into it now because I'm going to talk about it on Christmas Day. And I talked about, I told Charlene, you know, there were two amazing gifts that I got Christmas 1964. And I thought they were the best ever. One of them was my dog, Brownie. Best dog a boy could have, looking back at it some 60 years. I told Charlene, you know, as great as those gifts were, they're gone. They are completely gone. The best gifts that you and I have ever received at Christmas, they're obsolete in just a few years. Everything is temporary. Isaiah says, even our faithfulness is temporary we don't live forever on this earth there's only one thing that unites us there's only one thing that we know for sure there's only one thing that we know will last and Isaiah says it's the word of our God that endures forever our second foundation stone is this hope based on God's word 
spoken or written, is certain. Hope based on God's word is certain. I think it's no accident that when the Apostle John sat down to write his gospel, his account of Jesus, he began with, in the beginning was the Word. And he there, we know, is pointing to the eternal Word, which is Jesus Christ, that outward expression of the whole Godhead. In the beginning was the Word. When hope is based on God's Word, it's certain. Now, I know, I know my granddaughter believes that I am going to come through. And I am going to come through, unless the merch is late. But I also know that my word is something I can't always guarantee because I don't control the circumstances. We're planning to go to a middle school band concert and a high school band concert this week because our grandkids are there. But you know what? I can't, I, I'm planning to be there. It's on the calendar. We've, we've put our schedule around it. But who knows what's going to happen between now and then. But God does. And that's why God's word is certain. He is sovereign. He knows, as we've said, he knows what will happen. He knows what won't happen. He knows all the possibilities. And he is able to bring it about. Oh, Isaiah's not done yet. He reminds us of the character of God. Look at verses 9 to 11. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. That's statements of power and might and strength. But note this. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. A third foundation stone is simply this. We put our hope in a God who is at the same time, who is both powerful and gentle. This is one of those statements of prophecy that has yet to be fully fulfilled. The Lord has not yet returned with power and might to rule with a mighty arm. But he has come as a shepherd, gentle and lowly and humble. And we know that he describes himself as a shepherd who cares for the lost sheep. Those images, those images are images of gentleness, of compassion, of concern. We know that he's a shepherd because Jesus told us in John 10, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. What Isaiah prophesied and hoped for, you and I can know. The Messiah who was to come has come. And we find in him a foundation that is worthy of our trust. And in that foundation is a confident expectation that if he's already taken care of our sins, he will do what he says he's going to do. 
As I read this great chapter again and again, I was struck by the vast reality of God. And in fact, as we look at this chapter, God goes into a lengthy section of rhetorical questions. And sometimes I think God asks rhetorical questions, questions that we already know the answers to, because he wants people to get the point that you cannot in any way figure God out. You can't put him in a box. You can't entrap him in your scheme. You can't manipulate him to do what you want him to do. His response is, I am the vast God and you are a human being. You need to trust me even when it doesn't make sense. Look at these questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? The answer is no one. You and I can't do that. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as the dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor are its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? In what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? That's a lengthy passage, and let me summarize it this way. An incomparable God is worthy of hope. 
That is the theme of this whole section. God is incomparable. You can't compare him to anything. I'm a person that has a lot of words. I am different than most men. According to those who study these things, most men have about 10,000 words a day. I think I've got about double that. I run out of words to be able to describe God. I, I just, I, I'm speechless. In verses 12 through 14, he asks five questions, and the answer to all of them is no one. No one can measure the hollow of the world in his, the hollow in his hand. No one can hold the dust in the back. No one can do that, but God can because he is self-existent, all-knowing, and all-powerful. Verses 15 through 17 says that, remind us that God is unfazed by the events of history, by the comings and goings of nations. He works through history, but he's not controlled by it. Nothing that happens on this earth catches God by surprise. I've done it before. It's because I love it. It's a fun line. It's, it's from a Christian comedian named Mark Lowry. He says, have it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Yeah. When something happened, God's, going, God's not in heaven going, didn't see that coming. Whoa, How, where did that came out of left field? No. He's unfazed. Verses 18 through 20, he's incomparable. You can't in any way create an image that will fully represent him. The only representation of God was in the beginning was the Word, John 1.1. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The only one that shows us who the Father is, is Jesus. He says that in John 14. He said, show us the Father. And he goes, haven't you been with me all this time? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Otherwise, nothing we do can fully represent him. And I'm going to tell you, people will go to great lengths and invest time and money in the best of materials so they can somehow create an image but the, the writer here reminds us, idols of worship are just that. They're man-made, they're human-made images. And sometimes we don't make it in the image. We make the idol ourselves. Or the idol becomes our paycheck. Or the idol becomes our house. Or the idol becomes our hobby. Or the idol becomes our children. We create our own little gods. And God says, those are never going to satisfy you. You know, you know what my children all did? They moved away. They, they up and left. They moved away. And now it's kind of like, if I'm not careful, my idol is my own space. <laughs> you know, nobody walks into my house anymore and starts going through my pantry taking stuff to get, take back to college with them. <laughs> One of our kids we called a human tornado. You know, they would come through, and next thing you know, it's like, didn't we just go grocery shopping last week? And it's all back in the dorm room, you know. And, and, and because if my idols are my children, then I want to keep them with me, and I want to control them, and I want to manage them. And no, the best thing I do is hold them in open hand and let them thrive. Verses 21 to 27. One scholar says these are questions 
And like a father reminding of children of what of the, his children what they should already know. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Hasn't been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded that God sits above the circle of the earth? What a great word picture. Google earth, earthscape from moon, and you look and you see this planet earth. You see the blue planet, they call it, right? And you see that kind of a glow around it. And, and, and in a sense, what Isaiah is saying is God sits right up there, right at the top. God can see the whole earth. He's in control. He's over the earth. That's a way of saying he's sovereign. He manages. And in response to that, the writer says, why do you complain? Why do you think your way is hidden before the Lord? Have you ever felt that? I have. I've felt that. There are times when I'm thinking, God, hi, it's, it's little old Scott Howington here. You know, I, I passed this church in Wheaton. Remember, I think you asked me to come here all those years ago. Well, I'm still here. God, how come nobody asked me to write a book? You know, God, I, 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 I have training in radio. Nobody wants me on the radio show. God, God what are you doing? God, God, am I important? We've all felt that. And, and Isaiah says, if you look at the incomparable nature of our God, the God who is vast, the God who sees everything, it's foolish to say, God, you don't see me. God says, I, I see you and I know you better than you know yourself. I know things about you that you don't really want me to know about you, but I know them anyway. And guess what? I still love you. And I still sent my son to die for you. And I still want part in your life. Finally, we get to the final foundation stone. And once again, that question is reiterated. Verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God-centered hope, God-centered confident expectation enables us to soar. What a great reminder. We have to get out of our own way sometimes so that we can see God. We have to get out of our own way so that we can see that God really is there. God is eternal. God is all-powerful. God is untiring. God empowers us. God renews us.
Now, it's interesting, some of your translations will read, those that wait upon the Lord. And, and, and that is actually a good translation just as well as God, those who hope, because the two words are really kind of twin realities. The word that's translated hope or wait here is a word that in a negative context means to set an ambush for. Let me put it in a positive context. It means to wait for someone at their surprise birthday party. You ever done that? You ever done a surprise party for someone? And you're all at their house and, they, and, and, and maybe their spouse has taken them out for dinner or their, their parents have taken the kids out and you're all waiting there, you know, and all of a sudden you're, they're coming. And you all get down, the door opens, you go, surprise! Oh, Uncle Billy, please, when you get in here, you were supposed to be here 20 minutes ago. You get all down again, you know. And you're waiting. What are you doing? You're waiting with anticipation. You're waiting for the moment. You're waiting to surprise them. It's the concept here. Maybe not the surprise part, but it's the idea of those who wait in anticipation on the Lord. Those who have confident expectation that God is there. Those who have that confident reality that God walks with them, that God sees them, that God knows where they are and knows their circumstances. When you have that, then you soar. You see, what happens to us sometimes is we want to go ahead and run and soar and flap our wings, but we don't want to wait for God. And this is a hope with a promise it's conditional. You don't soar if you don't wait on God. It's like somebody on a hang glider and there's no wind at all and they run off a mountain and wonder why they can't get any traction. You don't soar if you don't wait. If you don't wait on God, you will run and grow weary. If you don't learn to wait on God, you will walk and you will faint. And some of us have been there. We've been there. We've said, I'm going to go do this. God, you bless it. I am going this way. This is what I'm going to do. This is amazing. God, you bless it. And God's saying, that's great. You go that way. But that's not my plan. If you just wait, I'll show you my plan. But if you want to keep running your own way, I'm going to give you the freedom to do that. God wants us to learn to wait as we learn to hope in Him and Him alone. He alone shores up the foundation of our lives. He alone empowers us to serve Him as we eagerly wait for Him. Everyone gets tired. Everyone needs to rest. Everyone needs to be recharged. And for the one who follows Jesus... The one who has put their trust in his work on the cross, who died to redeem us from our sins, for that one we find a unique strength. We find that we can soar above our circumstances. It doesn't mean they're not hard. You know, you, you watch an eagle or a red-tailed hawk, uh, and, and you watch them soar, and what's interesting is they tend to turn into the wind. They tend to turn into, they're looking for thermals to continue to stay up. And, 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 you know, we have to be patient and wait on God. He, he will 
lift us above our circumstances, but we have to keep our eyes on Him. When we are trusting God, we can run against the wind of difficulties. It's not easy, but there's a strength He gives us. We can walk the journey of life without fainting. Because the God who is greater than all we face says, When you put your hope in me, when you come home to hope, I'll be there and I will help you. That doesn't mean life will be easy. It won't. It doesn't mean that bad things are never going to happen to you. They will. It is to say that in the core of your being, in the depth of who you really are, God says, I am here to give you the strength to keep going if you trust in me. Last week, we established the fact that our true home is in relationship with Jesus. We celebrate his birth at this time. Coming home to hope, I believe, means coming home to that faith relationship in Jesus. Coming home to hope means growing in that confident expectation that no matter what I face, I believe with all my heart, Jesus is there, Jesus cares, Jesus understands. Many years ago, I was sitting in a class and The individual that was teaching us, who was a a counselor, gave this illustration to one of his clients. And he, he told the client, when you fully hope in Jesus, everything else you face is like a three foot drop. It was a few months later she went through a tragedy, a horrible tragedy. And in the midst of that tragedy that she was going through, where loved ones were lost, she reminded herself, it's just a three-foot drop. I can get through this because God is with me. And that is the essence of hope. A confident expectation that no matter what I'm facing right now, I don't face it alone. God is with me. That's what it means to come home to hope. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminders in your word this morning that you truly are the God who sits above the circle of the earth. That you are the one that when we hope in you, when we wait on you, when we lean into you, you give us all we need to take the next step. Ask this morning, Lord, that no matter what we're facing, we would remember that you are there, that you walk with us, and that we would trust you in Jesus' name.